Christian life is lived by faith. The Christian life is not a set of ideas which you live your life by. It's not a uh, set of ingredients uh, followed by some steps that you mix everything in a bowl and bake it at the right temperature and voila, Christian life. It's lived by faith. It is not simply procedure. It takes spiritual work, and that work is a thing which we cannot produce ourselves. Faith, though, though it's not a set of ideas, though it is not a set of ideas, it is not contra-rational. And what I mean by that is it is not against rationality. Um, when you get into apologetics, there are many people who uh, wish to bring out a defense of the Christian faith from logic, from rationality, and it's a wonderful tool. Though the Christian faith is not a set of ideas, it is not contra-rational, it's not anti-intellectual, but it is evidence-based, built upon the foundation of Christ. The spiritual reality of what Jesus has done is the bedrock of our faith. Christ himself is the bedrock of your life, and the life of the Christian is lived by faith. So we trust in Christ's work because he has shown himself trustworthy, not just because we kind of heard it and took a so-called leap of faith. Leap of faith is the worst idea or worst phrase you could possibly use to describe a Christian's faith in the work of Jesus Christ. A Christian's faith, or the trust that a person places upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ, is the most rational response when presented with the evidence of the claims of Christianity. That is, God made the world in six days. He sent his son to redeem us from the fall that happened. His son perfectly bore witness to his nature and character, and throughout his life, uh, redeemed and began to cultivate a people out of Israel who would be the church uh, who he atoned for on the cross. And that by atoning for them, he has opened up a way for his spirit to come and to lead those who were once in darkness, who have been recreated in his image, into full maturity. And so the claims of Christianity, when, when examining the evidence, the trust in Jesus Christ, though that is not manufactured in us by ourselves. It is the most rational response to the evidence, such as historical evidence, the authenticity of the Gospels, the epistles, the seemingly uh, world domination that Christianity had in the first few centuries. None of those things, as we've been exploring the last few months, none of those things can be explained by anything but the fact that Christianity is true. That's the most reasonable, reasonable and logical uh, explanation. So, if there are any things in our lives, any spiritual malady or bad condition uh, that is in our lives, it must be rooted out not by our own striving, not by our own attempts, but rather by drawing on the grace that God supplies by the Holy Spirit. And turning again once, uh, once every day, once every minute, every hour, to look upon the work of Jesus Christ, the famous hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour, Every hour I need thee. What a great hymn. I need thee every microsecond. Uh, of course, they're not neglecting that concept. We, once again, every time we face uh, a great stumbling block in our life, we must again turn and look upon the work of Christ. It's not enough to consider Jesus' work on the cross, accept that, or or acknowledge the, the fact that that happened, and then simply... Um, you know, coast along the way. It, you must turn again to re-examine and re-behold the work of Christ. And that's exactly what John tells us to do in this chapter. So uh, we're going to go through this chapter. Um, this is the middle point of the book of First John, and we've been looking, if you have been with us, which I, I don't think there's any visitors, so if you've been with us, we've been looking at the writings of John in the New Testament. And the meta themes that we've been examining, if you remember, is light and darkness. There is light from God and there is darkness, which is now uh, personifying the evil one and his minions and his doctrines and or his beliefs. And so there's light and there's darkness. And then John also in that theme has people who can see and people who can't see. 
okay? So there are there is light that happens in the day, and there's darkness, which happens at night. There are those who can see, those whose eyes have been opened by God. They don't see in their own right. And then those there are those who are blind, who through the fall have been spiritually deadened to see anything that God would say. So that has been the meta theme by which we've been examining and integrating with John's writing. This chapter is filled with that theme. Though you didn't hear any blindness uh, or, or darkness language on the surface, it's filled with that sort of language. So we're going to look at that again. That's going to be our framework as we continue to go through John's writings. Um, we're, we're going to look at six elements of this chapter. First of all, the love of God and what the gospel is. Uh, the second thing we're going to examine is the future form that you and I will have. Um, and by form, I don't mean we'll become a alien or something. I mean, what uh, it will be the nature of our existence uh, after the second coming. I want to look at, after that, uh, John goes into t- talking about what is called an indicative. An indicative is a very fancy word that you should learn. It's It simply means something that indicates. And indicating something is basically saying, you know, um, here is a person in a grave, here is a tombstone. The tombstone indicates what is in the ground. When you plant vegetables at the beginning of the year, sometimes, I didn't do this this year, but it's helpful to put a little stake with a word that says these are tomatoes. Hopefully if you're planting tomatoes, you know what they look like. But it indicates what is there. John here gives some explanations of godly living that indicate righteousness. That is, if you're doing these things, you can be assured that you're righteous. After indicatives or things that indicate, there is always imperatives. Indicatives and imperatives are a key way to understand all the epistles, uh, especially Paul's writings. He first, uh, if you remember Ephesians, he first says you're righteous over and over again, three whole chapters of you were redeemed, uh, God in his great mercy predestined us before the foundations of the world, etc., etc. Uh, you are righteous, God has cleansed you, you've been brought to him. He's writing, of course, to a church, so these are good things to say. And then he moves from indicatives, or saying what is what has been done to imperatives or things that you must do. It is imperative, Paul is saying over and over again to his churches, it is imperative that you do these things. Because of the gospel and its truth, then therefore you must do these things. It is a because of, therefore kind of framework. So indicatives and imperatives, and then we're going to look at what true love really is. Uh, John here uh, is, is attacking some people who, well, he's attacking an idea that it's okay for you just to be fuzzy with your brother uh, rather than what true love demands. And then finally, we're going to look again at the idea of assurance uh, from love. Not assurance uh, away from love, but assurance through love, if you will. Um, so, John, at the beginning of this chapter, he tells us in First John 3, 1, to see what kind of love. There's that I word again. What do you do with your eyes? You see. This phrase, see what kind of love, is is, I think, uh, better translated, uh, behold. That's what might be found in, like, the King James or, or some maybe New American Standard. I'm not sure. But the word behold means to apprehend uh, by spiritual sight. Here, John is admonishing us, see what manner of love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Okay, so there's an indicative. God is calling us his children through the Apostle John. John is is commanding us here to apprehend by spiritual sight. Beholding is not merely reflection and contemplation, though it is those things are included. Beholding is to, by the Spirit, apprehend and receive the truth of God. It's not enough to just see it off as a, at a distance, but rather that sight must allow the photons, if you will, extend the metaphor, to impact you. You have to be hit with photons to see something. John here is saying, behold, meditate, reflect, but also receive and understand 
the manner or the type of or the quality or the extent of the love that the Father has given us. To behold God's love then is to experience or witness the person of Jesus Christ in his supreme sacrifice on your behalf. It is not enough for you to believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world unless you simultaneously know and have experienced the epignosis of God's knowledge that he died for your sins. You can be uh, in a Christian church, know the, the, the gospel back and forth, but if you simply think that Jesus died for the world's sins and yet have no true understanding that he died for your sins, then you are missing the gospel. You have not beheld the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God did not spare his own precious son in rescuing, rescuing us. So what does that mean? That means he has esteemed us or he's counted us worthy, he's, he's estimated us, he's evaluated us as being not in our own right, but by his great mercy to be, to be worthy of being called his children. Again, there was nothing commendable in us, and yet God evaluated us. He, he used his righteous, merciful standards of evaluation and counted us worthy to be called the children of God. And John has this wonderful phrase, um, and so we are. What a great phrase after the children of God. What John's trying to say here is you were called to be the children of God, and it's not in name only. God's not just putting a label on a rotten egg saying fresh organic. He is saying you are the children of God. You have been made into, you have been adopted, you have been reborn. Again, not in our own right, but by his grace, great mercy. Therefore, because of those realities, attempting to live the Christian life without God's love as the foundation is sin. What Paul means when he says, whatever is not of faith is sin, uh, that's, that's a very tricky phrase, but it's understood by this fact. God called you his children who were not his children. He has adopted you. He's washed you. You've been reborn in the image of his son, Jesus by his Holy Spirit, and that by that, that love has established your life. So if you're attempting to just live a moral life or the good Christian life without the foundation of Jesus's work, that is God's love, then you are sinning. You are still an idolater and you love your own righteousness more than God's righteousness revealed on the cross. So that being said, John's giving us great confidence for those of us who know that Jesus died for me, if you, if you really know that, John's saying you are the children of God. It's not just a label, but you are. That's, it's an ontological statement that he's making. It's not, just, it's not just what you're about, but it's who you are. It's not just the trappings or the externalities, but it's the internality of what God's made you into. And so here he begins to move on to give a great promise of the future. This is the gospel. He's saying you've been the children of God, and simultaneously, there's a place you're going. He tells what's happened and what's about to happen. John plainly states that we're God's children, but something marvelous is said about our destiny. He says in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, okay? So that's what's hap that is what has happened. And then he goes on to say, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, Again, the I metaphor, because we shall see him as he is. Paul says that we, with unveiled face, but, but still beholding through a mirror dimly, are beholding God's glory, and therefore we're being transferred from glory to glory, an ever-escalating experience of, of God's power in our life. We're beholding, we're seeing through a mirror. John's using the same metaphor here. We do not know what we will become, but we know that we'll be something marvelous, not by our own doing, but by God's doing, because there will be what uh, some branches of the church call the beatific vision of God. That is uh, something that is uh, putting beatitudes in you, uh, or it's a miraculous spiritual uh, experience. And, and what John is saying here is that by the beholding of Jesus Christ in his physical body with, uh, with amazing terror and dread that will accompany it, we will behold him and we will be more like him. We'll become like him. Because what? 
will see him as he is. Um, yes, this is a spiritual reality, but it also is not a Gnostic reality. It's not something that you just do in the Spirit by yourself, by the power of the Holy Spirit now, but rather when he appears, we will behold him face to face. So that's a magnificent thing, and no other religion has uh, anything close to that sort of uh, amazing you know, glorification of the believers, if you will. And so, because of that, John says in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. So that's where you're going, and uh, it's been announced to you that we, we, we have such a weird idea of the gospel that it's an appeal. The gospel is an announcement that Jesus is the king, and it's a command to submit to his rule, to be washed by his blood, to be washed by the water, and uh, then to follow him. Uh, this is an announcement. It's not just kind of an option. This isn't a package. This isn't air conditioning and power windows on the car. This is where you're going. You're going to be glorious because you will see Jesus Christ at the end of the age uh, in physical form, uh, kind of like what we had covered in Revelation 1. So that's where you're going. And because of that, you might as well get started now, John's saying. So again, John takes this theme of sight and that the vision of God will be changed, and this is a marvelous and great hope. Though you and I struggle with weakness of devotion, susceptibility to temptation, the pride of life, one day we, be, we will be fully sanctified. One of the greatest forms of assurance that I know of today is the yearning and groaning in my heart of one day the struggle will be over, and I will be done with the passing pleasures of sin having any pull on me. And that's happening now, but it one day will be finally done. And that is a great hope. Therefore, therefore, we purify ourselves now. What a great and glorious day that will be. So uh, if the devil attempts to say to you, um, you know, you're just too weak to make it, you're too uh, immature to make it, you're not disciplined enough to make it, you tell the devil to shut up. And uh, you remember what is going to happen. That's what John says. That's, that's what we mean by our great hope. If you've ever watched Duck Dynasty, uh, Phil, Phil uh, what's their last name? Robinson. Phil Robinson says, we thank you for the mighty hope we have. Well, you know, a lot of people probably don't know what he means. He's referring to the resurrection from the dead and beholding Jesus with unveiled face. He's not referring to dying and going to heaven. Um, you can tell that by some of the other phrases he uses. So, indicatives and imperatives. This is heavy stuff, but it's, I think it's helpful. Indicatives and imperatives sometimes appear similar. And what I mean by that is sometimes you're reading your Bible and you, you see what might be a command or what might be a proclamation of what's already happened, and you get them backwards. Um, so they appear similar, so it's vital for us to be able to distinguish and understand what's being said in the moment. Indicatives indicate a reality, while imperatives communicate a command. Indicatives are things that are done, and imperatives are things that we have to do. So if, if you can't remember indicatives and imperatives, though I think you should learn those terms, you can just remember done and do. This is what has been done by God, therefore this is what I have to do. Um, Verse 3, uh, 1 John 3, 3 through 4, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, not as, that's not referring to you, that's referring to Jesus Christ, he purif you purify yourself as Jesus is pure. So uh, in the like manner, in the like uh, means uh, of Jesus' purity, you tap into that now by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, and you purify yourself today. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning and practices uh, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Here, John is just stating something. He's not saying stop practicing sin because you're going to be lawless. He's saying if you are practicing sin, as in that's your daily, I'm going to keep sinning, I really like sinning, I want to keep going after this. If you're pursuing, if this is your walk, uh, John is basically giving the church some ammo and saying, if this is where I want, if, if, if you're seeing someone in your midst who is going after, pursuing hard after sin, then they are lawless. 
they are not following God's law. They're not following God's command, as, as John indicates at the end of this chapter, the commandment of God. So here he's saying everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So that is an indicative. It's saying this is reality. This is a measure or a, a standard by which to measure. Again, John is combating, as we've been seeing, he's combating the Gnostics who maintain that sins with our bodies are not as important as long as we attain to, to, to true spirituality. How does this look today? This is the hyper-grace idea that you can uh, you know, be addicted to pornography, be addicted to drugs, be addicted to your greed, be addicted to your, you know, the idolatry of your family, as long as you still worship Jesus then you'll be okay. Let me make no uh, qualms about this. Your life will become less and less marked by giving into temptation, by going hard after sin, by pursuing your own idols, and more and more marked by the character and quality of God, sacrificial love that you did not originate, that's what John's saying in this chapter, is that the mark of a true believer is love for the brothers, which you could never maintain, uh, produce yourself. So John demonstrates their hypocrisy because they continue in sin, which Christ came to end. You know, verse 5, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, verse 6, keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Again, there's our blindness metaphor. No one who continues to keep on sinning has seen Jesus. Now, is John, again, we, we've covered this the last few weeks. It's important to understand. John is not demanding perfection. John is not saying uh, that you will never make a mistake. You'll never uh, fall into a sin. This is talking about the way of your walk. If you are just living in unrepentant sin and the, the things which you once warred against, you're now complacent with, and there's no amount of uh, concern, there's no amount of fear of judgment uh, about that issue. That's what John's saying. These Gnostic guys are not just toying around with little petty sins. They are teaching and maintaining and okay with the fact that sin is in their life and that they are continuing this unchecked. Um, they're not plowing the field, they're letting it grow completely. They're never clearing house, they're never settling accounts with the Lord, they're never confessing it as sin, they're just living with it. That's what, that's what we mean by sin, uh, uh, those who are, are continuing on in lawlessness. So, verse 6, no one abides in him, keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So he's saying, if you're still uh, sinning, you're living as a sinner, you are walking in the way of the world, there is sin in your life that is unchecked without any repentance, any remorse, there's nothing at all in your heart that is fearful of this element of your life. Hell is just being unleashed proverbially into your lifestyle. <clears throat> if that's the case, then you're still blind. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, Jesus Christ, is righteous. So your practicing righteousness is done like unto or in connection with Jesus' righteousness. That word as, that two-letter uh, preposition, is one of the most powerful connections in the Bible. When, when we say in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debtors as we forgive those who trespass against us. God's teaching us to build into that prayer a, a uh, spiritual law, if you will, that the measure of forgiveness that we are re receiving should be also the same quality of the measure of forgiveness that we give as we forgive those who trespass against us. That means in the same time, in the same manner, in the same quality, to the same extent, etc., etc., that's why Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. That's, there's very little, that's, a, that's one of those things. You're not very unique, you're unique. You're not almost perfect or very perfect or more perfect. It's either perfect or it's not perfect. There is no qualifier on those words. There's no qualifier on that idea. 
So here he's saying, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That means that because of Jesus's righteousness, his current standing before God, uh, his his, uh, current place before God, that is your righteousness. And therefore, if you're practicing righteousness now, it's done by his power, by his spirit, and it's righteousness because of his righteousness. It's connected, not apart from. John speaks in triads in his epistles. Um, You've already learned two giant words. You're about to learn a giant idea that will help you understand John's writings. John uses a thing called a triad. Now, um, if you don't know what a triad is, it you can break it down. There's try, and then there's ad. So you're watching three commercials between each break of the TV. No, uh, just making sure you're listening. There's a triad, and the triad is three. Of course, try is 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 three, and then ad is is just a functional unit of language. So there's a monad, a a duad, or a biad, uh, whatever. So the point being that John speaks in three ideas, and this is a what. In poetry, you might call a couplet. A couplet is two, but here there's a triad. So you've got couplets, you've got triads, etc., etc. These are terms in language, and triads in their repetition are the literary form of every fact shall be confirmed by two or three witnesses. What John is doing here is he's saying verily, verily. If you remember from the King James when Jesus is speaking and teaching, he says, verily, verily, or if you're using a modern uh, translation, he says, truly, truly. Jesus is saying, this is not, I'm not uh, in any uncertainty about what I'm about to say. That's what John's doing here. He's saying, this is a thing fixed, and this is true. And so John is speaking in these triads, and he uses this, this is not just in the first, uh, this is not the first example of a triad in uh, John's writings, but this is the most Uh, in my mind, easy to cut your teeth on. So he blasts the Gnostics and the antinomians, those who are against God's law. He says, Jesus came to end sinning, so how can they claim to know him if they continue sinning? Right? That that makes sense. If Jesus' purpose was to end sin, who are these guys who who are claiming they're super apostles if they're continuing in sin? The Gnostics, John asserts, are blind and ignorant. They don't know him at all. And so another wonderful example follows hard after, right after this. Um, if you remember back from the example, it was everyone who hopes, verse 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice, verse 5, or sorry, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, keep in mind that when there is a triad in Scripture, it doesn't have to be broken up along the verses. So each of these examples happens to be three different verses But while you're reading, look for these things. It doesn't have to be broken up into three verses. It could be two. It could even be one. It's just any place that there is three statements of an idea. Um, In this chapter today, all of the examples of triads are three separate verses, but it doesn't have to be that case. He does it again right after that in 1 John 3, 8 through 10. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What a wonderful rhyme there. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So that's an idea. Anyone who continues to sin is a child of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God. So this is the antithesis of the, the previous idea. He says, these are children of the devil. Then he goes on and says, these are not children of God right? It's a rephrasing of the same idea. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed or word uh, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So here, these are children of the devil, and then the next idea is these are not children of God, and then the next verse is that idea again. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So uh, another thing to understand with triads is often they, they hammer home an idea, and then there's a connecting phrase to the next group of statements or, or teaching. So three phrases. No one who continues to sin is anything but a child of the devil. Then he goes on and says, these are not the children of God. Then he says, therefore, it's evident here are the children of the devil and here are the children of God, a triad. And that's very helpful to understand what 
the point of the author is, especially in these chapters where we see stuff and it's like, man, does that apply to me? No, yes. How do you know? You have to find the larger intention of the author. And one of the ways to do that is to see what he spends his time on. So John here is spending his time uh, by repetition. That's one of the ways in which they, that's the economy of the, of the scriptures, if you will. He's repeating this idea a few times. So this triad is built on the idea of the children of God versus the children of the devil. So only after hearing the gospel, we move on to imperatives, only after hearing the gospel can we at all respond in faith to the message of God. Uh, verse uh, 11 through 13, this is another triad. Um, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. So here he's saying an imperative we should love one another. This is the message that was in the gospel. First, the gospel was God has loved you through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself has loved you by coming and getting you. And therefore, we should love one another. Because of God's love, we love our brothers. So this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Again, from the last chapter, this is no new commandment. This is the message that, is, that you've been hearing. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain. That's an imperative. We should not be like Cain. Do not be like Cain. Do not slander or murder your brother in your heart. That's what Jesus is, is coming, and he's saying, my ethics, my law is much deeper than the surface. You heard don't murder your brother. I say to you, whoever calls his brother an empty head or a fool has already murdered him in his heart. Same thing with adultery. God's laws, his commands go to the heart of the issue. Whoever looks at a woman is guilty of adultery. Not whoever sleeps with a woman. Whoever looks at a woman who's not his wife. Uh, of course, that's implied. You're allowed to, to think your wife's cute. Uh, whoever looks at a woman has committed adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. With, uh, so don't, 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 uh, don't go there is what he's trying to explain is he what he's saying is the heart reality is much more important than if you've actually uh, murdered someone because the the reason you murder someone is because you've already done it in your heart you're carrying out um the you know our laws do acknowledge a difference between moments of passion accidents and intentional premeditated murder all of those are are judged differently and what, what this is, what Jesus is saying here in if you hate your brother in your heart, you're murdered, murdering him, is the way in which you get to murdering your brother is by first murdering everyone around you. And then after that, then you begin to carry out the, the, the deeds of darkness after having a heart full of darkness. So John's saying we should not be like Cain. He's not saying all of us are not like Cain. He's saying we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And again, John is going here. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, Cain, uh, most theologians think Cain didn't bring an appropriate sacrifice. Cain brought an appropriate sacrifice, but he gave it first at the wrong time. Abel was atonement. Cain was first fruits. That, that comes after and Cain wanted to be exalted and to be recognized as the true first worshiper. And so Cain, his deeds were evil, though they would have been accepted. How else would it have made sense if God told Cain, uh, sin's crouching at the door and you must master it? How could he have mastered it if he was doomed to bring the wrong thing at the end of mastering sin? He still would have brought a bad sacrifice? That doesn't make any sense. It's plain that Cain was jealous of his brother's position in worship. That's what Cain's sin was. Do not be surprised, verse 13, brothers, that the world hates you. So this is, is saying that the whole world, is, are they're the children of the devil, and therefore, just like Cain hated Abel, because you're not children of the devil, the world will hate you. That's what John's saying. So John reminds us that the command of the gospel is to love, and we should love our brother, and we should not hate our brothers. Both ways of saying it are helpful. We should love our brothers. That's true. And we should not hate our brothers. Both of those things are commands. They're imperatives. You must do this. Because of God's love, you must love your brother. 
Likewise, we're not caught off guard when the world hates us because we understand they are children of Cain and we are children of Seth, of Christ, so to speak. So the true love that is demonstrated in this indicative imperative coupling, wherever you see God's commands, you first have to see God's salvation. Uh, So many get the point of the law wrong. They think, and this is what Israel fell into over time, they think that God's law was so that they could be saved. No, not at all. May it never be, (laughs) to use Paul's phrase. May it never be that that was God's intention. God first reached into Egypt and drew out Israel and saved her. He said, I carried you on the wings of uh, of eagles. I I pulled you out with a mighty outstretched arm. He dashed the, the Egyptians and shattered their economy, their control over the world, their power, their gods, their, you know, their society, and in so doing has saved Israel. Only after God's salvation is God's command given. Before Adam receives the command to till the garden, to protect it, he first is what? Placed in the garden. That's God's provision for him. God's law never comes to you just by itself. It comes only after and along with his salvation. What happens when Israel goes out of Egypt to continue the idea? Sinai, when they get the law at Sinai, that's not the first time where God establishes the law. What happens when when Israel goes through the Jordan, it says that the Jordan became like a wall to their left and a wall to their right. What does he tell Joshua when he's going into the land of Canaan? Do not turn from the law of the Lord, either to your right or to your left. When, when God is bringing them out of Egypt, he's establishing his provision and his boundaries on them. So, indicatives and imperatives are always connected. Before you hear God's command, you must hear God's salvation, the message of the gospel. So, verse 16 through 18, uh, here's yet another uh, triad. By this we know love, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. Again, this is what John's saying. How are we to love our brothers? Well, it's been demonstrated. It's part of the command. By this, we know love that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First, we see God's salvation. We imitate that example. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? God, who did not spare his own son, but freely gave us what? All things. John's saying the same thing. How, after seeing God give you everything, can you hold anything from your brother? Little children, verse 19, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. The the reason I'm so thankful that this church exists is because we have so many people, elders, people who will eventually be deacons, etc., as well as some of the brothers and, and sisters in the church who sacrificially love through deeds and through truth, not just in word or tongue. Uh, We have so many examples of that, and I think it's a wonderful environment for young Christians to grow up. When you sacrifice your time and your energy, especially when you didn't plan on it, when it's inconvenient, dirty diapers are always when you're getting in the car, so to speak. Uh, Well, you know, I heard that phrase a few weeks ago. I think it's helpful for us who want to eventually have kids. the idea being that the time that you are called to love is never planned. I mean, it is planned, but it's not always planned, and it's always inconvenient to your flesh, and it's always frustrating to your will, not God's will. And so the way in which we love the brothers is when we have to make sacrifice, when we have to give our time, our money, our stuff, our favorite stuff, good stuff, stuff we like and polish on the weekends. We are supposed to love not just in word or in tongue. What that means is when you see your brother begging, this is, I forget where this is in the scripture. Uh, you, if anybody remembers, you can shout it out. Um, you, when you see your brother begging or see someone asking for something, you can't just say, be blessed and be filled and go about your way. You, you, have, to, you have to give. Um, 
True love is not done in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. And therefore, we're not to be closed-fisted with our brothers, but share what we have, laying down our lives to serve them. So triads abound yet more in this chapter, and this is where we're uh, rounding out here. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Now, many people read this and uh, they think that, that John is saying, well, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. So don't take any, uh, don't have any concern because God knows you better than even your heart knows you. I don't think that's the right sense in this verse. I think what it's saying by the context of the verses on uh, before it and after it, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart. The, the mode is to establish assurance or to reassure us. And then verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. He does not say, beloved, if we uh, don't have confidence in our, in our, even in our heart, then we have confidence in, through, uh, from God. He's saying, if our heart does not condemn then we have confidence, if then. He's not saying if, but also, he's saying if then. So verse 20 is decidedly uh, understood as this. If, you're, if even your heart condemns you, then you know that you're in trouble. What, what he's saying is our hearts being desperately wicked, full of deceit, full of self-justification, full of self-righteousness, are the last things uh, to move into this mode of condemning or indicating of sinfulness. What, what he's not saying is that anytime you have any accusation, but if, if your own heart says, I know that I'm not a child of God because I run hard after sin and there's no contrition, then it might be that the Lord is by his spirit waking you up. He's not saying that you should just ignore that and think, no, I'm fine. Even though my own heart is condemning me saying look at what all of you look at what you've done look at all of the ways in which you live your life you are definitely not walking in the spirit if your heart does say that perhaps the lord is tugging he's not saying if your heart condemns you uh just ignore that he's saying if our hearts do not condemn us we have confidence before god now again this is not to be understood as you are walking as a Christian, you're growing in your faith, you are repenting from sin, you are overcoming temptation, you are living the law of God through his power, through the power of the Spirit, and then you do some terrible sin, or day by day you war against and are still succumbing to temptation as a young believer, someone who's beginning to walk after Christ. He's not saying that you should just consider any single sin or even uh, things that you may be addicted to, etc. He's saying if your heart continues to testify to you that you are completely unrighteous, that you do not follow God nor have any respect for his commands, if you hate God or do not wish to acknowledge his existence, and then you hear the standards of righteousness and your heart condemns you, pay attention. It may be the fact that the Lord has got these bright warning signs that are trying to get into your blind eyes here. It not in, in any case should be understood as to say, if our hearts condemn, verse 20, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. It should not be understood to say that John is saying that if our hearts condemn us, don't worry about that because God is greater than our hearts. He's saying God knows everything. So if your heart has finally uh, started to understand, even your sinful heart has started to understand the depth of wickedness that you're walking in, then maybe perhaps that is a, a chance to see that you are not a child of God and that you may just be living the dream, so to speak. One day you will wake up and see your life has been ruined through your own sinfulness. And perhaps that's what John is talking about here. He's saying here that if your heart does not condemn you, then you have confidence. What's the negative of that? Is you, if your heart condemns you, you do not have confidence. This is not at all a license for sin, 
a license to pretend as if the grave concern that you have over your own life should be ignored. That is what would be taught in a, in a hyper-grace idea, that no matter what your heart condemns you about, it's okay because, quote, God is greater than our heart. I don't think that's what John's saying here. If you disagree, I would suggest that you wrestle hard because it's not clear to me that um, he's saying anything of the sort because the language is, if our heart does not condemn us. So therefore, uh, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. There's a triad there. He says, we'll know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart when what happens? When we're loving our brothers. But if our heart condemns us because we're not loving our brothers, then we don't have any confidence. And then verse 20, if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we have confidence. That's a triad. And then finally, he moves on to the next idea. So basically, the assurance idea is this. If we, who were formerly following after darkness, hating everyone, getting in, in racial strife and marital strife, in, in warring against others, in seeking to establish domination over other people by political means, any of these things, if we were doing that, if that was our manner of life, and then we move from that to love the brothers, we have great assurance because that could not have come from us. That's what he's saying. If you were a hater of everyone, and then you were transformed, and now, at this point in your life, you're loving the brothers, you have love for others, then that is great assurance, because you could not have manufactured that. What does Jesus say? That every tree brings forth after its own kind. If you were a hater of all, then you were not loving other people. If you love the brothers, then it must be because you are following Christ. This change in our hearts, we could not produce ourselves. Uh, the, the metaphor for the Gentiles being grafted in uh, into this true branch, which is Christ. It says that Jesus is the, the true, he's the root of Jesse. He's the true branch. He's the true vine, he calls himself. And we get from him water, nutrients, you know, nitrogen, all the stuff that's in the dirt. He then says, Paul takes that same metaphor and says that the Gentiles were grafted in. Have you ever seen what a graft looks like? A graft is, is not done by the plant. A graft is done when a vineyard dresser or a vine dresser or a gardener cuts one plant off from its source, literally cuts it off, and then takes another plant and cuts it off, splits the first plant, the plant that's being grafted into, he splits it with a knife down the spine of the plant and then takes the grafting plant, the plant that's being grafted in, he takes that and shoves it into the other plant, binds it with a special uh, bond, and then seals it to protect it from infection. Uh, may I submit to you, your theology must match up with this, grafting is not done by the plants. You could never have grafted yourself into Christ. The Gentiles could have done nothing to get into Israel uh, or into the true Israel, Jesus Christ. There was nothing that they could have done. Now, there was a provision just technically that they could have become circumcised, but not nations at a time, not the whole world in the way that salvation has come. So you cannot graft yourself into the branch. Likewise, the, the point of what John is saying here is if you are now loving the brothers, that assurance is powerful because it could not have come from you. Verse 22, verse 23, and whatever we ask, if we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now this, you may hear this and think, oh, we're getting set up for failure. No, not by any means. Keeping his commandments is simple. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That is what Jesus is saying, the first two commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. So, likewise, the commandments that John is explaining here are to love his son, Jesus, and to love one another. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, what are those commandments? To love his son, to love the brothers. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit 
whom he has given us. These are great tools of assurance for you to combat the work of the enemy that, that you should not lightly dispose of. Uh, that being said, however, of course, we do not deceive ourselves into thinking we are right with the Lord, but rather we should judge ourselves justly. The blessings of answered prayer is not exalted over the blessing of God abiding in us in this passage. And if we are keeping God's commandment, then we know that God abides in us by his spirit. That is what John is getting at in this chapter. If you love your brother, we know because we were all haters of God and haters of those around us that we did not bring that about ourselves. Do not miss the times when the Holy Spirit wishes to show you that thing you just did was supremely loving and it never came from you. It was worked in in your life by him. Those are profoundly long-lasting uh, moments in your life which are bulwarks against the onslaught of the enemy. If you are serving the brothers, if you are loving the brothers, if you are not hating the brothers, that could have never come from you. It's great evidence. Now, of course, could you manufacture sorts of things that look like that? Yes, but not really. Not over your life. That's why John's saying this is true evidence of you being a real believer. So with that, we're going to pray and then fellowship with the Lord through the taking of his body and blood. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would remove any false assurance, any scheme of the enemy that would be self-deceiving, that we would think, Lord, that we are following you if we are not. God, we ask that you would provide lasting assurance. We pray that we would know and apprehend by the Spirit, that we would have eyes that are opened, as John says here, to be able to behold the manner and glory and breadth of your love for us, which was demonstrated when your son Jesus stepped up and, and took on the sin of the world by hanging and dying on a cross. Lord, we thank you that he received the wrath that we deserved, that, as Isaiah says, by his stripes we have been healed, Lord, that he truly did atone for us, and that by faith in his work and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be recreated after his image, and one day he'll return and we'll become even more like him. What a glorious, glorious hope. Lord, we thank you for the words of the Apostle John. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.